I'm Robin Crane, and this is the Growing Your Financial Business, The Woman's Way podcast. Listen, I was a financial advisor for over a decade, and I got so sick of the old archaic strategies that your grandpa used to get clients. What the industry teaches today is still so outdated and just doesn't work anymore. So I had to find a better way for myself, and then I got obsessed with sharing these how-tos with other women like me. The stuff I teach doesn't require giving up your life, your sanity, or your family time. I want women like you to have it easier than I had it, so you can thrive in the industry. I've now helped thousands of women grow their financial businesses to multiple six figures, some even seven figures per year. So on this podcast, you're going to get an inside look at how they did it so you can do it too. Let's dive into the show. Welcome back. It's Robin Crane here with Caitlin. What's your last name, Caitlin? Carlson. Carlson. I, I knew that, but then in your bio, it just says, Caitlin, like you are kind of like Madonna. Like that's how you do it. Here's a first name. Uh, she's the founder and CEO of Theory Planning Partners, a boutique wealth creation firm for the top female entrepreneurs in the United States. And what I'm really excited about to share is she has a fee-only practice um, and she started in 2020. So she's had a lot of success. She's now... Um, she basically charging fees, uh, not just doing assets under, or not doing assets under management. So it's definitely a different approach. Um, she's a certified financial planner, uh, certified exit planning advisor, and accredited wealth management advisor. So she's got all the letters at the end of her name. Plus, she's got some kids and uh, has a nice, nice lifestyle. Not to mention, she's only 32 and started her business in 2020. So I think the most important thing from all that is like, you're young. You have a family, you figured out how to create a business and be really successful at it. And it hasn't even been three years. So tell us a little bit about like your background, how you got into this and why you went in this direction, like fee only and how we'll, we'll start there and then I'll, I'll keep grilling you. <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah. So, I mean, I went into finance right out of college. I was a psychology major in college and I began my career in asset management for Putnam Investments. And uh, Putnam was an ex uh, a strictly advisor sold mutual fund. So pretty early in my career, I learned what financial advisors did. And I thought like, wow, what a cool combination between my interests because, you know, working with families and individuals and working with money, it really fulfilled both the psychology and the finance aspect of things. So um, I met my husband at my first job. And of course, this sounds like such a cliche talking to this audience, but he became a wholesaler. And so uh, Wait, we at Putnam, were you a wholesaler? Was that the role? No, I was in a management rotational program. And my husband was an internal. So we met there while I was in the management program and he was an internal. And then he got promoted to become an external. And so we moved from Boston down to New Orleans. And so when we made the move from Boston to New Orleans, I ended up joining UBS Financial Services. Um, and I had a pretty unique vantage point because... I knew the industry really well at that point. I knew wirehouses, independence, RIAs. And so I was very deliberate about choosing UBS because um, I liked that they capped their advisors at 7,000. They were a global wealth management firm that was pretty prestigious. And I knew that I was gonna get solid training there. So I entered their wealth planning analyst program for two years and they paid for me to get my CFP while I was in that. And really that role was about introducing financial planning to advisors all across the Southeast. So I covered Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Arkansas pretty much by myself. 
um, and worked with over 80 advisors and over 300 clients in that two-year period. And tell me again, what was your role introducing them to what? Um, I was a wealth planning analyst. So I was doing the financial planning oh, okay. for- Getting the them to do more financial plans. And were does UBS charge for financial plans or they do free financial plans? Depends on the advisor. Okay. So they can charge. Have, exactly. Was yeah. that your goal as part of it is to like help them feel confident that they can charge or was that not the relevance of it? Um, oh man, our metrics were really about like bringing more money into the firm. So yeah, it's gotta off. be. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, teaching them how to do financial plans or wealth, wealth planning and actually get paid for it. Yeah. That was the goal. Okay. Yeah. There in however, there were very few financial advisors that charged a fee for the financial mm-hmm. plan. It was really in most cases like a lead generating tool. Okay. To- so it wasn't necessarily the planning fee. But the reason I ask is because now you have a firm where you just make your revenue comes from hundred percent from planning fees. Yes. Okay. And, and so how did you decide to make that jump to go from UBS and then to go on your own? And how long were you at UBS? I was at UBS for almost four years to In that uh, same role. No. So once I graduated from that program, then I became a private wealth advisor. For two and did they give you clients or did you have to go get clients or a combination? We had to, we had to go get clients. Okay. So you went from basically like at UBS, you're, you're not, it wasn't wholesaling, but similar feel, right? Where you're going to build relationships with advisors and to help them be more successful with their clients, which has a lot to do with, I would, I would assume business skills and marketing and sales. Right. And so now you have to go on your, or you chose to go on your own. And now you're basically bringing in your own clients. Yes. Correct. Okay. And was it challenging at first to jump, make that jump? Or were you just like good at it because you of your background and because you are you? <laughs> oh my gosh, no, it was painfully difficult. It was, I mean, I'm so grateful to my husband because he provided the stability and he kept saying to me, like, just build it the right way, just build it the right way. So it was a luxury for me that, wow, I mean, that is awesome certainly became more lean on our expenses because we were essentially living off of one income versus two. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I am really glad that he, not many spouses, I feel like would give that type of leeway, but I think because he had been in the business and understood how it worked. Um, and he is also in business development. He understands that it takes a while to ramp up. So I took three clients with me from the UBS days, which was basically enough to like cover my expenses. Mm. And I don't think I made anything really the first year. Wow. (laughs) So this is, so then 20, so you basically didn't have a ton of success at UBS, but you were at least trying to build it the right way. And then what made you decide to jump ship and say, I'm going to actually screw this. Like I'm going to go do it on my own. In 2020, did you decide that before the pandemic hit? So, um, the real story is I, I want the real story, Kaylin, <laughs> not the one you tell on media. No. Yeah. Yeah. The real story is I had to file six sexual harassment complaints in three years. Holy cow. Yeah. The first one was my very first week at UBS and I was 24 years old. Oh my God. That's a 68 year old advisor said that in order for us to build trust, I had to feel comfortable going in another room and taking my clothes off in front of <gasps> 
Oh shit. Not just like a little bit of like, Hey, talking down to you or like want to go on a date. That's insane. Yeah. So that was your first, that was one out of six. Yes. Oh my God. And they were that to that capacity, like that bad. Most of them. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. And how did, how can you stay there for so long? Um, because I just felt like I, it was a one-off or, Mm. you know, a lot of this happened when I was traveling to different offices. So like I was covering all the Southeast. So it would happen in Lafayette, Louisiana. It would happen in Jackson, Mississippi. It would happen in Alabama. Um, and eventually just became too exhausting to deal with. And, and you were just, but you did, you took action. Like every time it happened, you actually filed, like you weren't afraid to do that. Every time. Because wow. the advisor that did that to me, he ended up getting fired. And I believe because he said to me, he said, if you speak up, no one will believe you. Like I've been here for 15 years and you've been here for one week. And I did speak up and filed a complaint. And I, was nervous about that. I'm like, no one knows me. No one knows like, and I didn't want to get a reputation. I was an ice hockey player. So I was like very used to being in a locker room, putting up with a lot of stuff, but this was so different, such a different type of aggression. Um, and so I did speak up and I believe that part of the reason why he got fired. And of course now he's at Wells Fargo. Um, but I believe part of the reason why he got fired was because someone had filed a complaint before me. And so they had a history. of, And so, um, actually a, the person who filed the complaint ended up finding out about a year later because I don't know, one advisor was super nosy and needed to know what happened and then spread it around the office. But anyway, she came in to me one Friday afternoon and she closed the door and she said, I'll never be able to thank you enough for speaking up because that guy tortured me for years. And I'm a single mom and there aren't that many financial jobs down here in New Orleans. So is a tearjerker. Wow. After she said that to me, I was like, you know what? This isn't about me anymore. This is about all the women before me and all the women after me. So it was agonizing uh, and time consuming. And at times made me feel like I was crazy because I had to recount every single thing that had happened to me. And of course they're questioning and I'm like, am I crazy? Did I interpret that wrong? I don't want to get a reputation for being like too sensitive. Like I can put up with a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, at the end of the day, that became 50% of my career was dedicated to filing these. Wow. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, that took a turn like that. I did not expect. And thank you for sharing and thank you for being vulnerable. And I, I think it's so important because I, I I never thought about that, honestly, like, it's not like I thought it would never exist, but that's not where my attention has been. When I first started as a financial advisor, I was in an office with two women, um, two women, um, supervisors, like my OSJ was a woman. And then my immediate supervisor or manager was a woman and young too. Like we were, I was 29 and they were, one was 27. One was, I think my age, you know? And so it was totally not your traditional like office, you know, and we had then some men come in and whatever, but you know, when you have a woman that's like leading the office and another woman who the second leader in the office, even though they're teaching, like I always talk about, they still taught me old archaic, like male dominated strategies when it comes to sales and marketing. 
But the only time I really experienced like feeling very small compared to like the sea of men was when I went to conferences because then I'd go to conferences and like everyone is mostly an old white dude, you know, wearing a, wearing a suit. Um, and I never had any sort of experience like that. And, you know, thank goodness I didn't, but I never really thought about the fact that like that when male dominant industry, that probably happens a lot. And I just want to say thank you and acknowledge you for that because I think a lot of people would have that like inner voice, just say, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Like I'm never going to see them again anyway. It was just a one-time thing because I'm not even in the office. So like, who cares, you know, but you spoke up and that actually like made a statement for others. And, and I'm, I'm so grateful to that woman who said that to you as well, that she was able to speak up and say, like, you made a difference because now we get to say it on this podcast and like, maybe there are women I'm sure. And if you're listening right now and you're like, wow, that happened to me, I didn't speak up. Is it too late? Like, I would definitely encourage you to speak up. And I would like, I didn't even know this was an issue, but of course, if this is happening to you, it's happening to other women. So please, if you're listening to this right now, let us, please share your stories. You can send an email to support I'd be very curious to hear stories and maybe we'll bring you on the podcast to share because if this is something that's happening to other women, like we want to make sure that, this is the awareness is there and that we can do something about it. So Caitlin, thank yeah. you for bringing that up. Like, and how hard that must be to, to, to tell me that. So thank you. Yeah. And I think the other thing is if it has happened to you, don't judge yourself on how you responded because mm-hmm. you know, I, I was in shock and I was like scared that I was going to lose my job. This was in 2015 and the me too movement didn't happen until 2017. So at the time I felt like it was only happening to me and I didn't know what the consequences of speaking up were. So just have a lot of self-compassion if you have been through this and the way that you responded, because everyone's going to handle it differently. And I was just very fortunate that at the time I had a supportive boyfriend who knew the industry, who encouraged me to speak up. And I had a receptive manager who was also very much like a father figure to me while I was down there. That's great. It's interesting because you're reminding me of some things that happened to me that like I kind of forgot about and didn't think that were a big deal. But um, what comes to mind, I had a couple of situations actually when I went traveling, I was probably about that age, like 24, 25. I think I was, yeah, 24, 25. And I was traveling in India and I had, I used to have these, I still have, have like colitis, but it's basically like taken care of now. But, um, I had stomach issues, you know, for, since I was 16, I had stomach issues. And when we were in India, uh, we started talking to this Indian quote unquote doctor. Right. And he was saying how, Oh, he heals people. And I'm always like, my ears perk up when it comes to healing. Cause I'm like, Oh, I need, I want to be healed. I want to be healed. And, um, like thinking that it's almost outside of me, like I don't have control of it. And like, I was always kind of just like interested in, in that, especially like in a way that's not just like medicine. Cause when I was 16, they basically said, here, take these pills and do it for the rest of your life. And it was like six pills a day. And I was like, this can't be good for me. Like forever. Like I just intuitively thought like, there's no way I want to do this forever. So I'd take it and then I'd be okay. And then I'd stop taking it. And I'd be, you know, it'd last whatever. So anyway, there I was in India and with a friend of mine and this this Indian man and starts telling us about like healing and somehow it came up and he like brought us back to his shop and he's like, let me feel around. Right. And so, um, I've, I, I've definitely never told anyone this publicly, but I've very, I've told very few people about this and it's not that I was embarrassed about it, but it's, it's kind of like you start to, and this is where I'm starting to understand, like how you felt is like, think, well, it was kind of my fault. Like, 
I put myself in that situation. I shouldn't have done that. And, and it was very much like the, uh, what I would call micro commitment. You know, it's like this little micro commitment that you did. And then it's another little one, another little one, another little one that you're like, well, how did that happen? How did I let that happen? And then you go into your head of like, well, you know, I shouldn't have let that happen. And it's more focused on the fact that I did something wrong instead of this, this man. And so we went to the room and my friend was there with me. And so because she was there with me also, it seemed very safe. It seemed like, well, he couldn't be doing anything wrong. He's a quote unquote doctor. Right. I mean, what, a, again, I'm thinking like, what a dumbass my, like in retrospect, think like to go into this room with this guy in India who I don't know in this foreign country, like, it just seems silly. But anyway, I went in there and he starts like probing into my belly, like, which makes sense. Right. And then it's like, okay, we'll take off your shirt. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. He needs to get to my belly. Right. And then before you know it, it was like, take off your bra. And before you know it, he's like massaging my breasts. Right. Yeah. And, and then I was like, uh, let's get out of here. And I, I think, and if I'm, I might be remembering this wrong, but I feel like maybe even my friend there had something similar done, but I, I don't know if I'm, I can't, I should ask her. I can't remember that, but it was like, once he started doing that, I'm like, okay, let's, let's get out of here. This is not right. Like, no. And like, he was trying to sell us something too. And like, I was like considering buying something from this guy and then he's touching my breast and I was like, what the heck, this is wrong. And so we went out of there and we're like, okay, that was really icky. Like that was not okay. Like that was inappropriate. Like I wouldn't know the first thing about telling someone in India, like this man just touched my boobs, but like it was, it was so violating, you know? And then ironically, like I had two other situations, I believe it was also in India. I was traveling for a while, but like where I was just like, we're walking up um, like some steps or something and some random person, like a thing to do in India to go grab some, you know, Americans boobs. But like this guy ran up to me and like grabbed my boob and ran off, you know, something like that. And then I had the same thing happen in one of these, um, buggy, well, I don't remember what they call them. Rickshaws or, or yeah, rickshaw. Yeah. Rickshaw. Yeah. I'm in the back and this old man's like riding this in his bicycle, you know, and like, we're going so slow that someone again came by like on a motorcycle and grabbed my boob. And I was like, what the heck, you know? And now I'm like, I'm like, why, why is this all happening? You know? And, and again, not judging myself per se, but I think things come up, especially that first one, which was really like intense. Like, I'm like, God, like, why did I do that? And I just beat myself up instead of actually recognizing that like, okay, yes, we can make better decisions. I didn't make the best decision, but I'd made the best decision at the time. And like, you know, but I didn't deserve that. And that wasn't my fault and it's okay. So yeah, it's just crazy. Like The microaggression thing, that's the first guy that sexually harassed me. He did that too. So it was like over a course of five days where he would push me a little bit more and then push me a little bit more. Like he was like, what's something that like a man and a woman would do that might be like, it was all shaped around like risk, like taking risk. And he's like, that might be a little bit of a risk. And I was like, uh, he said, what would be a risk? And I said, I'm telling you that I would join your team today when I don't know you. And he was like, no, come on. You're a man. You're a woman. I'm a man. Like, and then he pushed me. We sat in silence for like an hour because I just didn't want to answer the questions. Cause I was like, is this really going where I think it's going? Like, am oh I crazy? and then I was like, um, give you a hug. And he was like, good. Okay. And then like, had me come back the next day and he would push it a little bit further and a little okay. bit further. And it's so interesting because recently I listened to the podcast on Jeffrey Epstein and I was like, wow, the parallels were fascinating 
in exactly the type of situation you're describing. What was, it, give, a, give him a little background. Um, just everything about like um, Ghislaine Maxwell being there. So young girls felt safe because they were like, there's another woman here. Mm-hmm. And it started mm-hmm. off as a massage. And it was like, well, right. my clothes, because like I'm getting a massage and you're like, well, yeah, I guess people take off right. getting a massage. And then it's like, they escalate the situation. Mm-hmm. But you as like a normal human being are just, and you're only thinking about how you operate in the world. Right. So you're not thinking from like a predator point right. of view. Right. And then of course things transpire and then hindsight's 2020 and you're like, why was I such an idiot? And it's like, well, yeah. you, you were set up to fail. You were dealing wow. with a predator and the microaggressions are such a glaring sign that you're not the first one. Wow. But, this wow. has been done before. And, and this is what uh, allegedly this guy was hired from Merrill Lynch for the same thing. And that's what upsets me so much about this industry is like, there's nothing on his U4 about this. He wow. just moves from firm to firm to firm. And who knows how many victims he's had. He's had at least two at UBS, you know, same. but like the sophistication, because when I said, when he got the sense that I was going to speak up, he's like, I've never touched you. I've never even shaken your hand. And, and then like, you're like, am I making this up? Like, well, maybe he's right. Were you thinking that? Were you thinking that? Also, well, I was also like, wow, the premeditation that went into not shaking my hand. So you could say that. you. Wow. That's insane. That is freaky. Well, um, okay. Well, thank you again for sharing. And again, if you are, uh, those of you listening, if you are a victim in any sort of situation, um, please, please speak up and help other women who go through this. And maybe it's not just women, you know, so, uh, we gotta, we gotta support each other and, and do what's right. And I, 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 I think just that's so interesting that that came up just because it's not, you know, I talk again about the male dominated industry and never think about that side of it. And I, that's obviously a problem that we, besides just getting more women in the industry, like we really need to handle and need to work on. So thank you for bringing that to my attention. So to change the course of what we're going to discuss. Um, so you were forced to leave essentially because not forced, but you had to, because of, you know, you're like, I don't want to be in this position anymore with guys who are hitting on me or doing inappropriate things. And so you decided in 2020 to go on your own. And so tell me a little bit about that, how you made that decision. Obviously it was somewhat easy in the sense that you don't want to be around this, but like, was there obvious, again, the straw that broke the camel's back type of thing, or was it just like, okay, one more thing, like I'm done. Or was it also compelling? Cause you're just like, I want to do my own thing. So tell me a little about that, that decision that you made. And then we'll talk about like how you've grown your business so far in just a short period of time. Yeah. So, um, so basically I had, I did have that break the camels back, at least for the Southeast. There was, I had a business partner who it it was an even worse situation. So I got home from that business trip and I said to my husband, I was like, I can't live in the South anymore. I just can't do it. I want to go home. So I went to my manager into UBS and I was like, you guys are going to pay for me to move home. I'm going to join a private wealth team up in Boston, which I did. And that, um, you know, I did, I switched offices, I came home, but it was still so apparent to me that I just couldn't be at UBS any longer. It was just a toxic work environment for me. Mm. And so coincidentally, the private wealth team that I joined ended up leaving and starting an RIA like three months after I joined them. That was a toxic work culture in a different way. It was more like 
my first day with that team, it was like someone left the room and they were talking about them. And then I was like, Oh God, what did I get myself into? Cause you know, it's like only a matter of time before you become that person. Right. Of course. So, quick stint there. I was like, I can't. And I was also so like kind of depressed because I was just grappling with all of this stuff. Right. And, um, so I ended up, um, co-founding an RIA with a former colleague of mine. And I'm so glad that I did that because I think I needed training wheels to get into entrepreneurship. Mm. And so he and I, um, co-founded the RIA and he had some business that was the AUM model. And I told him, I was like, I really want to work with business owners. And everyone kept trying to force me to work with divorcees because I'm a woman. And I was like, no, I want to work with business owners. Mm-hmm. So I got my CEPA designation, certified exit funding advisor designation. And then, you know, we're doing this for about a year. And then he comes back to me in February and he's like, I'm about to have my second kid. I'm really stressed about cash flow, And I, I don't like the business owners side of things. Like he just wants to be a stock picker, which is mm. so funny because he's only three years older than me. And it's mm. funny that we have such different philosophies when it comes yeah. to that. But I was so like relieved when he said that, because I realized that my passion was going to be working with female entrepreneurs. And mm-hmm. so it was great because I had a year to see what I would spend money on and what I wouldn't spend money on when starting my own RIA. Mm. So when I started theory, I had those three clients that I knew were basically going to pay my expenses. And then, you know, when I, but when I started theory, I was like, do female entrepreneurs even exist? Are they even out there? Like I had no idea because I had never seen them. The Mm -hmm. only ones I had ever seen were venture backed. And so I was taking a big risk to commit to this niche basically. And, um, I read a Michael Kitsis article not that long ago that said, like, if you pick a niche, it's really that third year that it pays off. Mm. And so it is a commitment and you do forego a lot of business. And so in that regard, I was lucky to have my husband's salary where it was like, okay, I wasn't worried about putting food on the table, but there were a lot of days that I don't know if I felt like a failure, but I felt kind of like an idiot. I was like, am Mm. I doing the right thing? Is this ever going to pay off? And then the other thing is, you know, kind of going to that concept of like your network is your net worth. I had to invest in getting into networks and getting Mm -hmm. into rooms where I was going to start to be able to build the relationships of my ideal client. And then I also had to figure out what were their quirks? Like what were the intricacies of their lives? What was their psyche? Like, and it's really only this year that I've figured out the female entrepreneur psyche mm-hmm. and able to speak to that and anticipate mm-hmm. their blocks or anticipate their objections. And that really only experience can make that happen. And so, you know, me, I'm an Enneagram three. So it's like, I want to like achieve yesterday, you know? Yeah. And so there were a lot of hard days between 2020 and now where only experience was going to teach me. And I had to stay, you know, I was a college athlete. So I think like a level of discipline and committing and sticking with something is like very much in my nature. Yeah. Um, And so I stuck with it and I didn't waver and now it's starting to pay off. So, yeah. Wow. That's so, so awesome. And I actually just had Michael Kitzes on the podcast actually. And he, he said the number one, um, 
I don't know, characteristic or the one defining factor, however he put it, of like what differentiates a successful advisor from someone who's not successful is how long they've been an advisor. It's like number of years. And it's like, yeah, the, like if you could just survive this business and you keep with it, like you said, you're an athlete and you just, you just got to stick with it. Like it's going to eventually work. It's a really good business. It's, I think it's an easier business model if you have AUM, like you're just doing fee-based a little harder, but if you're getting recurring revenue, even if it's just fees, like that's also a good recurring revenue model. Like as long as you keep the clients cool, like better than my, my model right now, because we're, we do keep some clients and we have, you know, renewals and stuff, but it's not like the recurring model type of thing. So um, yeah, you just got to stick with it, which is hard because it's, there's a ton of ups and downs and a ton of challenges. Um, so going back to the initial, I'm just curious, like what type of groups, when you say you invested in like groups, are you talking about like, um, like masterminds where they're like a ton of business owners, like c- give me an idea of one of the masterminds or something you invested in. Cause I, I know some people think, Oh, I'm going to invest in one of these networking groups is $500 a year. And I'm like, really? Like that's an investment. Like that sounds like nothing. Like, you know, cause some of these networking groups are a little bit more than the average ever. Maybe it's a thousand dollars. And I'm like, that's not investing. Like that's like nothing. Right. Cause the <laughs> masterminds I'm in are like 30 K to 60,000. Right. But yeah. um, what kind of mastermind or type of um, networking stuff did you invest in where you were taking a big risk? Yeah. I mean, the first mastermind that I invested in was specifically geared towards um, female entrepreneurs who were six to seven figures in revenue. And it was, it was like $22,000. And I had to go to my husband and be like, can you please trust me to take this out of our savings? And like wow. total, I'm betting on myself moment to make that work. And I've had some flops too, but I've been fortunate enough to have like some of the big investments really pay off. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So that um, that to me is kind of like just the path of an entrepreneur. And like, I love how you made the distinction earlier. Like I needed like the entrepreneurial training wheels, because I think a lot of advisors go in because they love helping people or they go in because they're good at math. I think most of them, like the women are, it's more about helping people than the math skills, but I have met quite, quite a few women even had them on the podcast where they're like, yeah, I was like a math major and finance major. And I was like, Oh, I was also similar to psychology. I was in human development. Like I'm good with people. That's about it. Don't numbers. I have to, I got a calculator, you know? Um, but I think a lot of women are like that. It's more about the relationships, more about the impact and all that, but it's like, Oh crap, I forgot. I also have to be an entrepreneur and like invest in myself. Like that is actually par for the course or you're not going to make it. Right. So, and I, I find a lot of women who are struggling because I come across a lot of women, of course, it's like, they aren't investing that much into the business. They already think they're investing a lot because there are fees to just keep a business alive. But when you compare that to someone who has a brick and mortar or like a real investment, like someone I I know just said, like she joined one of the lower cost companies to get in where it was like $74 for her to get licensed, you know, and then she's got to grow her team. I won't say the name of the company, but, um, and I was like, uh, like such a low entry, like, I said, you are very committed and you'll probably do awesome, but like, just be aware, like that kind of entry of that little investment, you're probably not going to get super qualified people. Like you have to really build the value in another way because it's such a low entry level. You know, when you get people investing twenty-two, dollars $30,000 a year to grow their business, they get results because they're like, there ain't no way I'm going to throw that money away. And there's going to be some bad investments. Like I've hired people and I'm like, why did I do that? That was a $33,000 investment. I, I didn't necessarily get the ROI. Yeah, the learning and that learning gives me the ROI. So it's like, okay, let me not just make X, you know, set expectations without telling anyone about it. And like, 
you know, talk to the people, make sure I'm making smart decisions with where I invest, but it's just like, there ain't no way to grow like a, a successful business if you're not investing pretty big in yourself. So that's, and that's like awesome. Sweating as you're doing it, or you're just like, is this the biggest oh, yeah. life? <laughs> you like want to puke. Yeah. You're like wow. shaking. Like I've, sh- I've, I've been, you know, signing a contract, like shaking. Like the first time I, I invested $10,000 in my biz- business, I was like, Oh, I felt like I was going to throw up. I'm like, this is just so wrong. And then it, you know, works out, it works out, but, um, but it's, there's just so much learning too. It's, it's, it's like, you can't get the lessons if you don't fail sometimes. So we have to just, uh, you got to take the training wheels off sometimes and you just got to ride. And like we tell our kids when we're teaching them how to ride a bike, like it's not that you might fall, you will fall. <laughs> You're going to fall, but we're going to put knee pads and elbow pads on and wrist pads on to make sure that when you fall, it doesn't hurt so badly, but you're going to fall. So like, let's just expect it instead of be like, no, no, just, you're going to be fine. Look up. You're going to be fine. You know, it's like, yeah, you will, but you're going to make mistakes. You're going to fall. And then just got to keep getting up that song. You probably know, cause you have young kids, that troll song. Um, knocks, knocks me over. I will get back up again. I freaking love that song. And I'm like, my kids are super into it. We just watched trolls again. And I'm like, oh, that's so good because she's talking about how like, you know, then she goes into those of you who don't have kids, you should definitely watch it still. But it's like, she goes into like, no, I can't think that way, you know, cause what if it doesn't work out? And she's like, no, I can't think that way. No, I'm going to, I'm just going to like, remember to like focus on like basically the good and like everything's positive and just assume it's going to be great. And then it's going to knock me over, but I'm just going to get back up again. It's going to knock me over and I'm going to get back up again. I freaking love that. So, you know, there's a lot you can learn from Disney movies. I'm just saying. I mean, I feel like I've had so many revelations from watching kids shows. Right. Besides (laughs) the fact that the parents might die because they always do. Unfortunately. I mean, they are like extremely sometimes traumatic where I'm like, wow, Lion King at like three. Is this this like right out of the gate that I I know my childhood at least, or, you know, I don't, Pocahontas was my favorite. And I'm like, wow, these like heavy topics for kids. I mean, even Snow White back in the day, like it's like, seriously, the stepmom's trying to kill her. I'm like, come on. And she already has no mom. And like, who's never seen her dad. Apparently like he's the king and shit, but like, come on anyway. So back to let's give them like one last thing to think about that you would say advice you'd give them as besides just sticking, sticking with it, but like any other advice from all this amazing experience and knowledge, um, what you would tell the listeners right now. It's just funny. Cause I was saying this to my husband the other day and he's like, yes, I know I told you this, but it did take me a long time to release that perfectionism because I was like, this is how it's going to go. And, uh, and he would always be like, your clients will lead you to the answer. And I'm like, uh, that doesn't feel good for me. I need to know all the answers. I wish that I learned the relationship between, I took a Babson entrepreneurship class actually. And it talked about how like in the corporate world, it's like you create this beautiful plan and then you execute the plan. In entrepreneurship world, it's like, get out there, skin your knees, learn, get out there, skin your knees, learn. Mm-hmm. And so I, now I said to my husband, I'm like, man, if I could go back, what I would have done is I would have given a lot of free advice so that I could have gotten to know their pain points earlier so that I could have gotten fluent in the inner workings of my niche earlier. So that when I was on sales calls and speaking to prospective clients, I could be like, Oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I had this other case where blah, blah, blah. Like I think it just would have maybe sped up the learning curve of understanding my ideal client, Mm. but I was so like, 
I need to get paid. I need to make money. And I wasn't flexing on my fee. And I we were literally like walking the dog and our kids. And I'm like, I think if I could go back in 2020, what I would have done is I would have given away like 10 free plans mm. so that I could have gotten in there, gotten my hands dirty, figured out what was going on. And then I would have felt so confident that like, yes, I do this all the time. Mm -hmm. client. Here's why you should hire me. I think that's like, just to comment on that, like that's a super fine line because I think like, so, I mean, so many companies already like are giving away plans for free. And I think it ha like, they're willing to do that, but then it's also a positioning thing. Yes. And if you know how to position yourself and then you're basically like, you know, I typically charge 10 grand, but I'm going to waive the fee or something like that because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in this beta, you know, stay right here. And we're going to, the first 10 people, are, like if you can position it well, where there's a reason that you give a discount, but you're still valuing yourself, mm -hmm. then like, I'm all for it. I think what happens sometimes is that women especially start to undervalue themselves and give their time away for free. And then when, you know, I forget who said it, but when people pay, they pay attention. So when they don't pay, they don't always pay attention. And then it's like, you want to learn from this niche, but then you're talking to the people who aren't willing to pay for it and don't value your advice. Yeah. And so then it's like, it's hard to really know. So I, I would agree that, you know, there's a lot of people, I think Frank Kern says, just work for free for a little bit, you know, like be willing to do that, but just own your value and give a reason why you're doing something for free. Like we, we teach an interview strategy where you go and interview like a hundred. It's like, I love this strategy because it's similar result, but it's higher positioning. So I mm. tell our clients to, we do this whole challenge, even the appointment generator challenge where we say in order to generate five, five appointments a week, like you tell them like, why don't you just consider writing a book? Like, it'd be really easy for you. You got a great story, but you don't even have to have like an amazing story or like a purpose. You just have to know you care about, like female entrepreneurs and the result that you want to give them, which is creating wealth. Right. And so we would say, okay, go to entrepreneurs, say female entrepreneurs say like, Hey, I'm, you know, considering writing a book about female entrepreneurs and how to build wealth. Can I interview you for my book? So now you got like super high positioning and you can spend, you know, we usually do 15 minutes, but even if you spent 15 to 30 minutes, really understanding what do they want, what's holding them back, what are their concerns and understand the market I don't know that you have to do a plan for free, although you could, but like that allows you to do the market research while you still position yourself so yeah. that then, and then if you don't work with them, like ask them who else you can interview. So we, we use that, but I, I think like, you know, not to say you're wrong. I'm just saying, I think what we don't see now in retrospect is like what happens when you position yourself poorly yes. undervaluing yourself and just doing everything for free. Cause I think a lot of um, a lot of companies are teaching, like you said, UBS, they weren't even mostly charging fees. It's not hard to go find a financial plan for free. You know, it just, you know, Edward Jones only does free plans. Like there's a lot of companies that won't even let you charge. I think the challenge is, is like, well, how do you stand in your value when yes. you're willing to do it, you know, for okay. free? Lesson learned here is hire Robin because she is way better. <laughs> that is such a better idea. But actually, it makes me feel it makes me feel a little bit better and more forgiving because I wasn't willing to sacrifice my positioning because I'm like I have private wealth management experience and like I am choosing to bring it to this cohort that's completely underserved. And so I had such a hard time devaluing myself, giving something away for free. And it frustrated me that UBS financial advisors gave away plans for free. So I think it kind of goes back to the whole hindsight is 2020 thing. It's like, yeah, from where I'm looking at it now, 
it might have been easy to say, but also part of me is really glad that I held my value. Yeah. And you wouldn't be, of course, you know, you wouldn't be where you are today had you not and had you done it differently. And we can always say that, but like, this is the path that you were on. But I do think what what you're bringing up and just to kind of close this off is like, what what is a great idea is to start to question and not always do things the way everybody's always telling you to do it. But like, how can I still position myself with a ton of value and really understand this niche target market, you know, we call it the clone, ideal clone, but like understand this person and what they're going through and what, what makes them tick and what, what challenges. Cause you, you're right. hundred percent right about that is like understanding who they are and what, what they, what keeps them up at night and why they're frustrated when it comes to their money and where the gaps are. Like you have to solve a problem. And and if you're not solving a problem, you're not going to get clients or you're not going to get the right clients. So if you are solving the wrong problem, they're, you know, you're not going to get the right clients. If you're solving a problem that they don't care about, or you're offering vitamins instead of Vicodin, which I like to say, it's like, nobody wants vitamins right now, even though I do like vitamins, but it's like, people want painkillers or like, give me the Vicodin, like solve my freaking problem that I'm aware of. And then I'll do the preventive and stuff, preventive, preventative, there it is stuff as well. And take some vitamins too. But first, like I have a freaking migraine, like, give me, give me, give me the head, get it headache medicine, <laughs> give me the Tylenol, give me whatever. So um, yeah. Yes. And just that, even though they might need all these other things, solve that acute problem first and then yeah. the rest. So wow. good. Well, tell, tell them where to find you. This has been great. It's funny. She came on the podcast and we're like, where do we want to talk about? And, and you're like, you know, if you don't want to re- record this or if you don't want to do this anymore, or if, if, or if you don't want to, you know, and I, I'm only saying that because like, oh my gosh, thank God we didn't like cancel this. This was so valuable. And it's all because, and this is another good takeaway is because you were willing to be vulnerable and share things that like most people wouldn't be willing to share. So again, I want to thank you and acknowledge you for that because I think this has been one of the best episodes because you were willing to go where most people wouldn't. Yeah. And it's not about like how much information you have or whatever. Like we have inherent value with our stories and our vulnerability. And most people aren't willing to share that. And because of that, you know, you've given a lot of women out there hope and given them a way to, you know, um, maybe even deal with some cope with some things that maybe have happened to them and give them forgiveness too, which I think is amazing. So I want to compliment you on that, but tell them where to find you. Thank you so much, Robin. Um, so feel free to come to my website. It's one page and we have a link at the bottom to my calendar. So of course, if you want to talk or if I can be a support system for you, I'd be happy to, if you want to book a call, we're also on Instagram at theory planning partners and you can just DM me there as well. Okay. Theoryplanningpartners.com. Yes. Um, theory. Oh, thanks for asking theoryplanning.com for the website. Theoryplanning.com. Okay. And the um, Instagram is Theory Planning Partners. Okay, perfect, perfect. We'll put in the show notes. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time on Growing Your Financial Business the Woman's Way. Bye-bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.